We have spoken very clearly in our sermon series this Advent season, Mary, Did You Know?, in our first two weeks, and we've discussed that there have been those in church history who have distorted the truth of God's Word about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Rather than regarding her as blessed among women, they have honored her as being above humanity, worshiping and even praying to her as if she were deity on par with her messianic son. This, of course, blatantly disregards the clear teaching of the Bible. We've also spoken openly about others in, throughout church history who've reacted to this error of Mary worship by failing to recognize Mary at all as the model disciple that she truly was. Now, the first chapter of Luke begins with a contrast. It's telling the story of John the Baptist's birth and that of Jesus' coming birth. John was the forerunner of Jesus, and it says here in the account that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. And he was so dedicated to the Lord that in his lifetime, he would not drink anything that was fermented. He would not drink any alcohol, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even before he was born, in utero, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the contrast is that John is going to be great, but look at what Jesus is. Verse 31, You're, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. That me name means he saves. And verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus, who saves, is the Son of God. Now, there's also a contrast that's taking place here between these two incredible women that are listed here, Elizabeth and Mary. Elizabeth's the older relative, the kinswoman in the Bible of Mary, and Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, is contrasted here with Mary and Elizabeth. And Zechariah was a lifelong priest, a descendant of Aaron, which goes all the way back to the Exodus experience. Now, these two women were humble and of no socioeconomic standing. Yes, Elizabeth was married to a priest, but he was an obscure priest. And her and Zechariah were country folks just like Mary, but they were from an unnamed location, a tiny village in the hill country of Judea. Elizabeth and Zechariah also bore the social stigma of being a childless couple. No doubt in the minds of some people back then, they were being punished with infertility because of some sin in their past. And the classic example of this being punished for a sin in your past in the Bible uh, occurred later in the earthly life and the ministry of Jesus when he was traveling with his disciples, and meaning they were walking from one destination point to another. And they came alongside a man who had been born blind alongside the road. And generally back then, because there were no social networks like we have today, there were no programs for people with special needs, uh, many times people with those needs would be begging alongside the road. They would be seeking alms and, and donations from people so that they might eat for that day or maybe eat for the next week. Well, this man here happens to be alongside the road. And we pick up the account in John chapter 9 in verses 1 through 3 where it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? 
this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That was clearly the understanding that many people had back then. Who sinned? Did this man somehow sin? Or did his parents sin that he was born blind like this? And Jesus says, neither, neither. But that the power of God might be displayed in him. Well, this is precisely what God was doing through Zechariah and Elizabeth. In fact, Luke 1.25, here's what Elizabeth says. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In in, In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Taken away my stigmatization. Taken that all away from me. Now Mary as well, by the way, was humble. She was poor. She was a peasant girl. She had no social standing due to her parentage. None due to her class or education. She didn't even have the same dignity that Elizabeth and Zechariah had in the culture because they were older and, and people that were older were honored in that culture. So Mary didn't even have that. Elizabeth's husband is a priest here, but he was the one who doubted God. So Gabriel, the archangel, tells him that he's not going to be able to speak until his son is born. Meanwhile, Elizabeth speaks multiple prophetic words here. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, she shares Holy Spirit-inspired words that are recorded in the Bible and have been passed on down through church history now for 21 centuries. These are prophetic because Mary didn't talk to Elizabeth. You know, there was no communication between them. There's no way possible she could know on her own that Mary was expecting. Besides, Mary is, is, isn't even showing. She isn't even revealing yet that she's pregnant. But listen again to the story, beginning in verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, okay, she finds out she's going to have this you know, child Jesus. And at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 42, in a loud voice, that's the Greek word megale, okay? It's where we get uh, uh, the, the word mega, like in grocery stores, a big, you know, supermarket chain, mega groceries, or, or where we get megaphone. In a loud voice, she makes this proclamation, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as she saw the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in the womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Now I should mention there are two different words for blessed that are being used here. In verse 42, it's the Greek word eulageo. It's where we actually get the word eulogy from, where we remember people and bless them and and speak well of them at their end-of-life services. So it's saying that people are going to speak well of Mary long after she's gone, as the years go by and the centuries go by. 
People are going to bless. They're going to speak well of her. But then we come to verse 45 where it talks about blessed is she who believed the Lord. And it used a different Greek word here. It uses the word makaria. And that happens to be the same word Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's saying, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. That word blessed there means happy. That means delighted, joy in the Lord. Mary, in these incredible circumstances as a young woman, pregnant, out of wedlock, and she's rejoicing, she's happy, she's delighted to be bearing the Son of God. In Elizabeth's prophetic words, she overturns all kinds of social expectations here. She's the spokesperson here on behalf of God, not her husband who was the priest. Mary is this unmarried pregnant woman here. She is young, and and from a cultural perspective, there is no legitimate reason for her to be pregnant. A pregnant teenage young gal in our culture might be a small scandal, but back then it would have been an earth-shattering event. Everyone in her hometown would have been disappointed. Everyone would have felt let down. Her parents would have been absolutely devastated. Her family would have been totally shocked. Her betrothed husband, Joseph, would have been beside himself finding out that she was pregnant. Her friends would have been equally stunned. The community would have been overwhelmed by this. And think about the rabbi, her rabbi, what he would have felt like in those times. I can remember how devastated I was as a pastor, in, uh, in, and I've officiated at 300-plus weddings, I don't know, so many over the years, but how devastated I was when one of the couples that I, first couple that I can recall that I'd married got divorced. It was shocking. You know, you're thinking, oh, what could I have done different? How, how could I have, what did I miss What didn't I see in our pre-marriage counseling sessions, in the time working with them through their marriage celebration, or the years afterwards? Could I have done something different? Because when ministers tie knots, they want the knots to stay tied. But think about her rabbi and how shocked he must have been. And Mary uh, certainly could use a little getaway at this point, so she, she, she goes off to be with this kinswoman of hers, this cousin of hers, Elizabeth. And it says here in the text she was there for about three months and probably took maybe five to six days traveling there with a caravan uh, and and the same thing on the way back. In all likelihood, she probably was there during John the Baptist's birth. And Elizabeth again overturned some big-time social expectations because Mary would have expected judgment. She would have probably expected some doom and gloom and shame and ostracism and maybe even a few messages from her kinswoman about, you know, hellfire and brimstone. But she's met instead with a joyous response. Elizabeth, from her own life of not bearing children, knew all too well the cost of being shamed and excluded in a society. She knew full well what it was like to endure a lifetime of being treated as a failure. And Elizabeth opens up her heart. She opens up her arms and she opens up her home to Mary when everybody else in her life would have expected Elizabeth to shun Mary. Instead of shaming Mary, Elizabeth blesses her. And when she welcomes Mary, she practices the same kind of love that Jesus did toward those in his day uh, that were social outcasts. The marginalized, the rejected, the excluded, the Gentiles, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, the sinners. 
And Elizabeth sees God's purpose in Mary's situation, and she ministers to the very person that the society around her would clearly reject. And think of what this would have meant to Mary to experience this level of hospitality, to hear these words of blessing, to actually have someone delighting in her, her pregnancy. Elizabeth's words and actions sure do make us think, and they make us reflect on our own openness to the way that God chooses to work in this world. Do you ever notice God working through people and in people that some Christians would exclude? Exclude? That some Christians would dismiss or just treat as outright shameful folks? Mary, she says, is blessed is she who has believed the Lord that he would fulfill his promises to her. And what a contrast as well in this text between Mary and Zechariah. Mary trusted in God's power and promise for her while Zechariah skeptically questioned what Gabriel the archangel was telling him that God would do. Zechariah asked for proof that what the angel was saying was true. Mary simply wanted an explanation of what was going to happen to her and then she gave her consent. Zechariah was a man in a patriarchal culture who had all the power, all the authority, and he was a priest, he was a religious leader, and he's the one who doubted God. But Mary, the poor little peasant girl, believed God. And her trust in God's word blessed the whole world. And Mary then seemed to immediately respond to Elizabeth's blessing by offering up praise to God. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. They will eulageo me. They will remember me kindly, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped this servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Throughout church history, this has been called the Magnificant. It's Latin for magnify. It's a song of praise where Mary is glorifying God. Now, some Bible scholars happen to think that Mary must have had some Old Testament scrolls before her uh, when she created this song because it sounds, they say, a lot like Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Well, I think what these Bible instructors are missing is that Mary was raised in a very pious, devout Jewish family. And they would have regularly sung the Old Testament songs in family worship, in times of traveling for the religious festivals, going to Jerusalem and at their various religious festivals, at the times of going to the synagogue and other times of training with rabbis and teaching. They would have sung these songs from the Psalms and from the Proverbs, from Exodus and from other parts of the Old Testament and even Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And it's just like today. You know, there are people today that have been raised in Christian homes, maybe not following God today, but they can recite the Apostles' Creed. I, I do graveside services all the time. I mean, some work around 400 funerals in my daytime, in my ministry, and literally every graveside, we will recite the Lord's Prayer. And there can be people, completely unchurched people, and they can, they can recite 
and pray the Lord's Prayer together with us right there at the graveside. Many people are familiar with the Sunday school songs, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little one to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Or Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Or many hymns like Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We have all of this oral tradition in the history of the church. We have all of this wonderful theology that's been taught and all of this history tied up in oral means. And it doesn't even compare to how things were passed along in Old Testament times orally. And amazingly, Mary's song here represents many of the great themes of the Old Testament, such as God's love, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's concern for the poor and the helpless, and the very themes that you see in the law and that you see in the prophets. And truly, Mary viewed all of God's dealings with humanity in light of God's grace, which as the early church was developing, would contradict much of what the religious leaders of Israel promoted when they taught that it was primarily in terms of human works. Oh, If you picked that head of grain there on the Sabbath day and ate it, you were in violation of the commandments. You know, it was that kind of thing when she was promoting God's grace. Mary also remarkably contradicts the powers that be, and thus her message was a dangerous one. She was dangerous to the powers that be because she predicted the powers that will be. Did you catch that? She was dangerous at that time to the powers that be, because she was predicting the powers that will be. She was dangerous to the likes of Herod and Augustus, the emperor of Rome, because her claim about her son meant that neither Herod nor Augustus would be king. And this is part of why Herod is so bent out of shape. When the Magi come and appear to him and say, hey, we've come from the east, we've come to worship the one who's been born king of the Jews. Well, Herod's king of the Jews. He doesn't like that message that somebody else is going to be king. So he plays a little coy and says, hey, when you find him and and so forth, uh, let us know. And so I may come and worship him. But that isn't what he's going to do. And of course, the Magi, they depart a different way. They don't report back to Herod. Herod sends soldiers there to kill all the infant boys, baby boys in Bethlehem because he didn't want a rival. And what do we find in verse 51 and 52? Here's what she's saying in her song. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And here's the portion of today's message that you really need to grasp. In Rome's history, it can be neatly divided into two time frames. One known as the period of republic, which was 510 B.C. to 27 B.C., and then that of the Principate, which is 27 B.C. to 284 A.D. Now, the person who turned Rome from a republic to a principate, and a republic was elected representative officials, a principate is basically emperors, a dictator controlling and making all the decisions. Well, the person who changed the governance in Rome from a republic to a principate was Caesar Augustus. 
the very one who ordered the census and this extra taxation that meant Jesus had to go to Bethlehem, be born there, all that stuff. And Augustus happened to be the adopted son of the former dictator, Julius Caesar. And as Julius Caesar died, in Rome they declared that Julius Caesar was God. So therefore, Caesar Augustus was the son of God. And when Augustus seized power in Rome, he ended all of the bitter civil wars that were going on throughout the empire. Thus, he ushered in Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And because he brought peace to Rome, he was hailed as the Savior. So Augustus was declared throughout the Roman Empire as the good news. He's the gospel. He's the bringer of good news. He was the Son of God the Savior, the Prince of Peace, and the good news. So when Mary comes on the scene and proclaims that her son is the Son of God, the Savior, the good news, the true Prince of Peace, the one who will bring rulers down, this is a dangerous message. It can only mean one thing, that Caesar Augustus is not the Son of God, nor is he the Savior or the good news. That church church was a dangerous pronouncement to make in the first century. In Luke chapter 2, which we're going to be studying next week, we find angels gathering together at Bethlehem in the heavenly realm, singing this heavenly chorus, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. This was the real pronouncement of peace. See, Mary's son would challenge the message of Rome because Jesus was the true gospel. He was the true Savior. He was the true Prince of Peace. And He was the true Son of God. And think about this for a moment. Mary was the first voice behind the Gospels that we now read. And that made her a very dangerous woman with a very dangerous message. It was a dangerous story to tell in the first century when the Principate, in Rome, under Caesar Augustus, who got it started, was in its early stages. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, this is after all these things have happened to Mary. The archangel Gabriel appears to her, tells her she's going to have uh, Jesus, the Son of God, that she's going to immaculately conceive this child through the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to hover over her. Then she hurries off to see her relative, Elizabeth, and hears all these prophetic words and these words of blessing and overwhelmed by that. And, and the forerunner of Jesus, who's going to prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist is there, and she's taking all of that in. Then she comes back and she's got to face the fact that her betrothed husband, Joseph, wants to divorce her and then an angel appears to him and and they marry and then they have to go off and travel 70 80 90 miles by beast of burden and on foot to Bethlehem and then there's no room for them because everybody's pouring in for the census so this baby Jesus is born in a stable and these angels come and these magi come and these shepherds come and all of this is taking place and it tells us in Luke 2 19 Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Ponder means to deliberate in order to interpret. In other words, trying to figure out what they mean. Mary was actively figuring out what God was doing in her world. And that included the tale of the two kings, Caesar Augustus and Jesus. 
And she proclaimed that Jesus is the winner. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Lord. And that story got passed on that Jesus was king and Augustus wasn't. Basically, when you're saying that, you're saying Augustus is an imposter. Mary is the one who began telling the story of Jesus to others, and she succeeded. That story has spread throughout the entire world. And without dismissing the important work and the important role of the apostles and the evangelists and the pastors and the elders in the early church, we must remember today that the early accounts we now have in the Gospels begin with Mary, pondering what God was doing and then telling others the story of Jesus. Now, it's natural for parents to tell others about their children or grandparents to tell others about their grandchildren. We got pictures galore on our phones. I do it all the time. I tell about my kids or my grandkids, where they are, what they're doing, where they're living, how many children they have, all those kinds of things what they do for a living, you know, the fun things they're doing. Oh, our granddaughter sang at their church last Sunday. And oh, you know, we tell those stories. We show those pictures. That's natural. But how many of us would dare say a word about any of our offspring if it would be viewed as treasonous by our government and could mean a death sentence for us? That's what Mary was under. To spread the good news of Jesus. And folks, the message of Christmas is still a very dangerous message today. There's a lot of people who don't want Jesus as Lord of their life. They want to be the, you know, their own managers. They want, they, they want to sit on the throne of their own lives. They don't want Jesus on the throne. They, they, don't, they want to be the masters of their own destinies. They want to determine Everything they're going to do and where they're going to go. They want to be the captains of their own fate in life. Don't let someone else in on that. I'm not going to depend or look to someone else for guidance. I'm going to do it my way. Well, folks, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He's the Prince of Peace, without whom we will never experience peace in this world like God intended. He is the good news. And all of us would do well to believe this message and to pass that message on to others as others have done to us. Let's pray. God, our Father, again, we thank you for the privilege we have to look into your word. And God, today, to hear how your word was brought to us through unexpected means of Mary and Elizabeth in remarkable fashions here, God, and, uh, and Lord, in a time that it was so dangerous to even do something like that or to say something like that. But God, we recognize today too that it's not a welcome message, that Jesus is a Savior, that Jesus is the good news, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the King. There's lots of folks that don't enjoy that message either. But God, I pray in the great tradition of the church, uh, and the, under the leading of your Holy Spirit, as you have led throughout the years, that your church, your people, would continue to let others know about the good news of Jesus, the good news that we celebrate at Christmas time and throughout the year. Bless your messengers, I pray in Jesus' name.